All right. So this morning and this afternoon, oh, I lost my water. At least I think sometimes I say this and then I go in a different direction. But uh, I believe, as much as I know in this moment, I'm not lying to you, I'm going to try and talk about the renewed mind and uh, it'll take a little while to unpack. That's why we got two sessions. So if you do me a favor, why don't you just lift your hands and let's agree again, Matthew 18, that as we agree that everything that God wants to do today would be fulfilled. Father, we thank you for the angel of the Lord that's here, the angel of revelation. Lord, we pray as the apostle Paul prayed that the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus Christ would be given to every person in this room, that the hope that is our calling would be known to us, that the riches that are available to us would come to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing us together. Thank you, angel of revelation that opens up your word. Let it be like those two disciples who walked on the road and their hearts burned as you unwrap scripture to them. Father, I really need your help, so fill me with the Holy Spirit. Apart from you, I'm not, I can't do a whole lot, but with you, everything's possible. So put your words in my mouth. Lord, uh, Thank you for all the gifts of the Spirit being in operation. We ask that Jesus would be glorified and your great name would grow and grow and grow in the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start in uh, Genesis, the first chapter, because I believe the whole concept of, of thinking like God and acting like God begins in Genesis 1. So if you want to follow along, uh, you can, and uh, we'll probably cover quite a bit of material and quite a number of scriptures. So if you miss something and you're one of these people who writes a lot of notes, don't worry, you can get the notes from us for a small fee. No, just joking. <laughs> I, have a, I have a friend, she's got a doctor's degree, she does a lot of teaching, and uh, people, she does a lot of conferences in different schools and so I was like, hey, can I get your teaching notes? And she hands him their book, the, her book. <laughs> she goes, it's right in there. You can buy it. <laughs> anyway, they, they, some of them don't want it after that. But that's a different story. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So uh, we know that not the greatest translation, uh, because we serve a God who has no beginning and, God who, and a God who has no end. So a better translation is, when time began, God created the heavens and the earth. When time began, God created the heavens and the earth. And the reason I'm starting there is this. Uh, just as a side note, I, I just was thinking about this. I read through Genesis quite a bit. I was thinking, God created the heavens and the earth, and I had this thought over the last year. It's like, how many know God doesn't need a place to live? But he creates heaven to show us where, what he wants the earth to look like. When time began, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The reason I start in Genesis 1 is this, because I believe God does not create something out of nothing. God, in, in, in Psalm 139, it says, his thoughts towards you are many, and they're like the sand of the seashore. And so I want to submit to you that if his thoughts towards it, it's really a beautiful thing. That's why it's good news. It's a really good gospel. I mean, 
it's a good life we get to live. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean everything's worked out, but like, like I've never talked to God. He goes, no, it's impossible. <laughs> just give up now. Like, <laughs> like, I've never talked to him. He's always just like, no, you can do it. Or, or I really blew it. He goes, I know, but I'll help you. <laughs> like, it's good news. So if he's got thoughts towards us that are very intentional, I want to suggest to you that when he creates the earth, it wasn't just, oh, I'll throw water here. Oh, I'll throw a mountain here. So uh, if, if this can be said, and this is a human description, God had a specific intent in his heart and his mind for what he desired in the earth. And what came out of his desire for the earth, he spoke the earth into existence. And there's a reason I'm emphasizing that, because we'll, we'll look here in a minute, because he actually gives us an aspect of himself that he used to create the world. He gives it to humanity. It's a beautiful thing. And, and he could have just said, you know, I always say this, he could have just said, I spoke the universe into existence, and then move on. But he emphasizes a point. One of the beautiful things that I love about Scripture is he doesn't waste one part of it. He doesn't waste one part of it and the parts we don't understand, the parts we might not even like, he put it in there. And uh, he, he says over and over again, he spoke, he spoke, he spoke. The, the book of Psalms says he commanded it and it stood still. And I want to suggest to you that when he speaks, he's not just speaking and going, oh, maybe, maybe I'll put the ocean here. Maybe I'll make the dam. It's very specific. He had an idea of what he desired in the earth. So he speaks it into existence. And then in Genesis 1, we pick up this. Genesis 1, 26. So he speaks, he speaks, he speaks. And everything he's speaking is putting, into, putting the earth into the order exactly as he intends it to be. He's very intentional and he's very specific. I've learned that when God speaks, there, there's like no discussion. There's, there are times where he's, he, he will be open-ended with me. Go, well, I'll, you do it, I'll back it. You know, it's this relationship. But there's many times is, uh, I don't have any choice. He told me one time, you don't even have to like it. <laughs> Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over all the cattle, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Verse 26, God makes man in his own image. Verse 27, he emphasizes again, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. Just as a side note, don't want to get into all of it because sometimes it becomes really political. One of the reasons why you have certain things coming to the surface in, in this nation, you know, you know first, first we were told that uh, homosexuals were born that way. Now we're, now we're told it doesn't matter how they're born, just whatever they feel like it. And I love them all. I don't want to mean to disparage them. But one of the reasons why th this, is, this, is, this is obviously the enemy using people, but one of the reasons why this is coming into the earth, and I, and, I, and I believe I saw this many years ago, is because the foundation to a healthy society and a healthy nation is man and women. And when you begin to undercut that, you begin to undercut a successful society, a productive society, and a healthy society. So God creates man and women in his image. 
Then God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, uh, 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 verse, 20, verse 28. God created them, male and female he created in verse 28, and he blessed them. That's a, another aspect of what God's given you. He gave you the blessing of God at creation. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And, and God said, see, I have given you every herb that yield seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to, to you it will be will be for food, to also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth, in there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. So the reason I'm emphasizing that part there is because he says a number of times over and over again that, uh, that he creates man in his image. What is he doing? He is actually giving humanity part of his personality. He's actually given you, I know it, sound, it might sound a little, a little strange, but he actually gives humanity part of himself to be his representative on the earth. The word image is likeness, resemblance. Here's the, the, a, a cool thing. There's nothing in the scripture that we can see that suggests you're giving, you're given just, uh, you know, everyone's just given just a part of the image of God. Every person's made in the image of God. That's why the gospel, it, the gospel, when it's properly preached and representative, uh, representative around the world, it gives dignity to all individuals. And if one was created by the creator of the universe, you're pretty important. And then you're made a steward of the earth. So this genius mind, if we will, that creates the world actually gives humanity part of his aspect to be his representative in the earth. And then you see this in operation. He makes man his steward in the earth. Through the commission given to man at creation, man was supposed to act as God's representative in the earth. Genesis uh, 2 verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. I always say, and I know many of you have heard me say this before, and we'll only finish. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave its names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helpable and comparable to him. So here you see how God intended to relate to humanity. Uh, God brings the animals to Adam. So God, Genesis 1, back to Genesis 1, God is the source of all things. But he gives humanity the privilege of being his co-laborer and his representative in the earth. And it says that God brought the animals to Adam to see what he would name them. Notice there that uh, when... It, because Adam is under the dominion of God and relating to God properly, Adam does not stop to, to ask God what he should name the animals. Verse 25. The reason I read this is a number of years ago, I was just kind of intrigued with this verse 25, kind of an odd verse for us. And they were both naked, and man and his wife were not ashamed. Think about the type of mind and created being that is able to name every one of the animals. The reason I, I look at verse 25, because I believe it gives us some indication of what it was like and what God intended 
and how God intended for humanity to, uh, to operate in the earth when they were in right relationship with him. 225, they're naked and not ashamed. How are they naked and not go, oh, that's weird, yeah, put some clothes on. Because they had, they thought like God. Think about it. Adam was created perfect. There was no flaw in Adam. I always say, it's amazing that God actually improved upon perfection. Like, this is like the perfect thing, and then he actually improves upon it. But his eyes, his ears, his mind, everything about Adam and Eve was made to commune with God and also to rule and reign as God in this earth. That's why God can speak to you in the shower. He doesn't think like you. He's not going, oh, they're in the shower. I don't want to talk to them. That's a little weird. God doesn't have any weird thoughts about us. He's God. So I don't know how this worked. I don't know if, if Adam just knew through his union with God, through his relationship with God, what these animals were supposed to name. But instinctively, and you watch the pattern, God speaks, God speaks, God speaks, then man speaks. And we know that when you name something in the Bible, you actually prophetically called into, you actually prophetically declared the characteristics it was supposed to have. So God speaks, God speaks, God makes man his representative, he makes him in his image, and then Adam gets to name the animals. So to see Adam in action at creation was to see God in action. There was no difference. When you saw Adam, you were supposed to see God. Now, I'm not suggesting that Adam is a little God, but I am suggesting that he was made in the image of God, and when we're in the image of God and we're functioning in right relationship with God, we're supposed to look like God. Two things, I believe, that, that were supposed to mark humanity at creation, and this, was, this, was, uh, th- this is just very interesting to me. Number one, Adam was supposed to be fascinated by eternal fellowship with God. It, the reason I, I, I really, this has been come a, a really like come on the forefront of my mind as, you know, I minister in different places. Everything that God does and everything that God reveals to us is supposed to be eternal. I love that we're here in this room. What, what are we, August the 12th today, right? Is it August the 12th? 13th. We're here August the 13th, but maybe, perhaps, I believe this, 6,000 years from now, if we're, if we're in a different dispensation, we'll be talking about, hey, do you remember what God did in 2016? He began to unwrap something in my heart that day, and boy, has it really, really grown. He, he intended you for eternal fellowship with him. I remember one time I was sitting... Um, Sitting on, on, on the, the beach in, in, in Wilmington, sometimes I just go and just spend the day, just sit there at the beach. I don't go in the water, I just sit at the beach. I don't like salt water, it smells. <laughs> I usually go when no one's there, you know, I don't like big crowds, you know. Like, they're like, we loved our day at the beach. I'm going, they're like sitting in this little thing. <laughs> they're like, oh, sorry, I just think that's funny. It's like, this is so much fun, you know. <laughs> Looks like fun. <laughs> but I usually go when no one's there. And the Holy Spirit's just like, look out on the water. So look, what do you see? 
water. All I can see is water. He goes, that's what it's like to walk with me. Paul, you, you get to discover for eternity the vastness of who I am. So that was one aspect, but here's the second aspect. Humanity was supposed to discover things in creation. Think about it. When Adam was put on the earth, when Adam and Eve was put on the earth, there was no internet. There was no light bulb. There was no anything. But in the earth, there was the potential for all of these things to be created to make life better upon the earth. And so they actually were supposed to be fascinated with creation itself. They had the privilege of discovering things in creation to build the earth and bring glory to God through the mind of God. And we know that their incorrect thinking or their incorrect agreement changed world history forever. Let's look at Genesis 3 because I think this is important here. Genesis, the third chapter. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Now, we watch, this is really significant, not only to our our life here on the earth, because the enemy is still operating in this way. The enemy understands something, I believe, that a lot of believers do not understand. And it's this, that he is a defeated foe, but he has power over you when you come into agreement with him. He's a defeated foe, and this is, the, this is the only way he has access into the life of a believer is if he can get you to agree with him. I mean, you see it in the story of David and Goliath. What's he doing? He's, he's throwing intimidation. He's trying to throw out something, and you watch that a whole army is paralyzed because they believe what he's saying. One of the signs of a religious spirit is passivity, where the enemy tries to get you to just give up, back up, what's the use, it's not working. That's one of the signs you know that you're under the influence of that, and you've believed a lie. Genesis 3. Has God said, shall man not eat of the garden? And And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the tree of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you, you will not surely die, for God knows in that day of it, you, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. So she took of its fruit, ate it, and she also gave it to her husband, and he ate it. Now just stop there, because you'll notice that his engagement to her, or he came to her in the form of questioning what God said. And that question, uh, the questioning of what God said caused her to look with her eyes. In the kingdom of God and in how God intended you to relate, you're not just supposed to look with your natural eyes. He caused her to see. You don't want to just look at life through what you can just see with your eyes. The gift of faith is beautiful because it brings you out of the realm of the senses, out of the realm of the intellect, and gives you the gift of seeing the eyes, the world through the eyes of God. 
And so we see that in this place, they fall and sin and destruction enters the world. And from that moment forward, we know that the DNA of the earth was forever altered. And it caused the earth to be, uh, uh, to be not as God intended. Not only did corruption enter the world, but also the DNA of man was forever altered in, when Adam and Eve sinned. But here's what I find interesting, and this is just me observing some things. Even in a corrupted state that humanity has now befallen, much of humanity, you still see some of the most magnificent and beautiful things created from the human mind. At a level functioning far uh, lower than God intended. Now, many of the things that you see that have been created in the world or have been a, a benefit to the world, they, a lot of times they were, they, were, they were actually by believers, but many of the things that we see were not. I, I was in, uh, as I tell this story, because I was in Haiti in March, and uh, we stayed in a hotel. It was the best place in town. There was not good running water and functioning toilets. And thank God we were only there four days because an interesting smell started coming into the room that I was sleeping in. So after that day, I became very thankful for the person who created the toilet and running water. And I found out the first running toilet was given to the Queen of England by someone who created it, plumbing and everything. But think about all these different things that have been created. The, the state where I live, you, they certainly weren't the first persons to think of it, but the, the Wright brothers were able to get a plane in the air that flies. I'm still fascinated that I can be one place one day and literally on another side of the world within 10, 12 hours just by getting on a plane. Apple, we, as far as we know, Steve Jobs was not a believer, but the brilliance of the things he created I remember looking when, when I first saw the first iPad that came out, and I thought to myself, why would I ever use something like that? I have a laptop. <laughs> but the brilliance of a human mind that was, be, was able to create something like that, that's forever changed the world. I mean, you get on a plane. It, see, little kids who know how to use iPads better than me these days. Has everything you need on an iPad. And they've changed the world. But these were people simply using the mind that God gave them and using what, Luther, what, what uh, Calvin would refer to as common grace. Common grace was this. He said that because humanity was made in the image of God, even though they might not be born again, even though they might not be saved, there's, there's a part of humanity that's still made in the image of God that knows not only good and evil, that's why some people know that it's wrong to do certain things, and you don't, even if they're not born again, but also the ability to be a benefit to civilization and society. Now, we mentioned a few people who are outside of Christ, but we know that Jesus came as the second Adam. Look at... Uh, Luke 4. There's a reason I read Genesis 3. Humanity was changed forever through the one choice of Adam and Eve. But Jesus came as the second Adam, 
and where humanity fell, Jesus won the victory. That's why it's good news. Look at Luke 4. Then Jesus, being filled with the Spirit, returned. This is verse 1. Being filled with the Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice he was led by the Spirit. The devil didn't lead him. And I've learned that the Holy Spirit will lead you into a wilderness to teach you how to be an oasis in a desert, not to kill you. I've thought a number of times, you're trying to kill me. No, he's trying to kill everything about you that's not good. No, it's true. I thought it was a really good prayer. Like, and it is a good prayer, but I didn't realize he was going to cash that check. When you're like, make me like you. Everything about me that's off, just change me. And he's like, what? No, 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 make me like you. I want to react like you. I want to just I ever want my mind to be like you. What'd you say? <laughs> you're like in that, that, that really powerful service. And you're like, I want to be like you. And he goes, what? No, no, everything's yours. My life, everything, my spouse, everything, my ministry. What'd you say? <laughs> and he goes, I'm about to cash that check. And I'm going to use the environment around you to do it. You're going to feel like you're dying. It's like a, you know, like a, a week later, you feel like a trap door opens in your life. And me, I didn't react too good to it. Like, I want to, like, get out of here, you know. And I've learned, when you're not passing a test, he'll just let you keep taking it. Yeah, you didn't learn that one. It's okay. I'll switch churches. Well, it's okay. You still got the issue, so you just have it again, you know. No, it's true. It's a beautiful thing, though. If you, if you work, if you let that process of God. And it's, and it's like you've never arrived. It's just one layer after layer after layer after layer. I tell you, the Holy Spirit's been doing some just deep things in my heart over the last few months. And I, I, like, I thought he was nice. And I discovered he's nicer than nice. In moments where you're like, man, what am I, this is thinking really wrong there. And he goes, I got your back. And you discover something about the kindness of God. Okay. And being tempted for 40 days by the devil, in those days he ate nothing, and afterward when he had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered and saying, it's interesting, really fascinating, right? The devil's technique doesn't even change with Jesus. Same technique, but the beautiful thing is Jesus doesn't back down. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from God. Verse 5, then the devil taking him up on the high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said, all this authority I will give to you in their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. By the way, he's making a true statement there because when Adam agreed with him, he gained authority over the world. Jesus won it back, though. Therefore, if you will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall serve. 
Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on high on the on the high, set him on high, high, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, "If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone." And he answered and said to him, "It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God." And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed until an opportune time. Catch the New Testament significance to that. Where Adam didn't make the right choice, Jesus made the right choice. And Jesus liberated every person in this room to be able to think exactly like God. And overcome every assault of the enemy to your mind. I always say that we hear from two different realms in the earth. One of the, you'll see it constantly in a biblical narrative. Joseph receives a dream from the Lord. What is God trying to do? God is trying to establish him in his identity and his purpose. He's trying to begin to bring his future into existence that day. But immediately, the environment around him begins to go, Oh, you really think you're going you really to rule over us? What's happening? Two different environments in two different realms are trying to establish him in his identity. The good news is Jesus won the victory so you could be established in everything that Jesus said about you. The place where Adam failed, Jesus gave us the victory. No longer would we have to think according to the pattern of this world system. That's, a, that's another thing that happened when Adam fell. This is another truth that's really been coming alive to me. It's this, that when, when, when Adam was under the dominion of God, he didn't have to worry about anything. Think about it. When Adam's in the garden, does he have to worry about how he's going to eat? Okay, she's only been saved four months and she knows that. <laughs> Adam was not worried about how he was going to feed himself. Adam was not worried about how he was going to clothe himself. Adam was not worried about what was going to happen tomorrow. God had it all taken care of. One of the effects of the fall was this, that when Adam fell, man now, there was this precedent in the earth where man was now trying to make it for himself in the world. I call it the Babylonian system. Don't think of 666. Don't think of Tim LaHaye and, you know, end times. That's not what I, there's an element of that, obviously, but here's what I'm focusing on. The Babylonian system is this, is man's way of trying to make it in the world without God. How am I going to make it? How am I going to take care of myself? How am I going to feed myself? How am I going to toil? How am I going to do all that? And here's the beauty of that. When Jesus restored what was lost in Adam, he restored our ability to live from a different system. A lot of people, I'm learning this, the Holy Spirit said to me, a lot of people have switched identities but never switched systems. Think about this. Uh, Make sure I get it right. Revelation, if you're Pentecostal, Revelations. Revelations 13.8 says this. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. 
Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. So before the world was even spoken into existence, before that ever happened, Jesus already had a plan. He knew that humanity would, would, would make the wrong choice of agreement, and Jesus stepped forward and said, I'll take the place so that they can be made right with him. So before the foundation of the earth, it was a done deal that Jesus was going to die. He actually dies 2,000 years, uh, uh, about 2,000 years ago, most people think, 2,000 years ago. And so that salvation, right, that we receive in him to be made right with him, can we do anything to earn it? Yes or no? Okay, a few of you know that. You can't do anything to earn it. It's a gift of grace, gift of faith. So we receive that gift that he actually uh, completed 2,000 years ago. We receive that gift. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to be made righteous with him. But we know that salvation is a whole lot bigger than that. So just like we can't earn salvation, we can't earn our own living. We can't earn our own house. We can't own our own destiny. Everything that we need, we can receive it by faith if we're living from the right system. And we don't have to strive to get it. Notice I didn't say it doesn't mean you don't have to work. <laughs> it just means you don't have to labor like the rest of this world. A great picture of that. I love the picture you see, you see in Luke, the fifth chapter. Luke 5, right? And this is a, a, this is a little rabbit trail, but it's good to go to. Luke, the fifth chapter Jesus comes to Peter, right? He's going to, he's teaching the people. He asked Peter to throw his boat out a little further. And uh, so his voice can amplify, he can speak to the crowd. Peter's coming in and Jesus says to him, and I believe it's a way we're supposed to relate to the world system. We in this room are supposed to have answers people are asking. Think about it talking about the mind of Christ. You got the mind of Christ. Every person you come in contact to, there should be some sort of answer that they need. So he, he, he goes, Peter goes, uh, Jesus says to Peter, throw your nets to the other side. And what does he say? Master, we've toiled. What does that mean? I've worked hard all night. I'm trying to earn out a living for my family. By the way, fisherman wasn't a bad profession then. I've worked hard all night. What's he representing? I'm trying to make it in this world just like everyone else. I'm freaking out. I, I got three jobs, so I'm, I'm barely making ends meet. I got car payment. I'm barely paying my mortgage because I lost my job. What am I doing? I'm working as hard as I can to, to operate in the system of this world, and I'm looking for some sort of relief. Throw your nets to the other side. And I always identify with Peter because he throws his nets and about sinks his boat. Should have thrown nets, plural. So he goes, I've worked all night, but at your word. So he throws his net to the other side. Think about it. The same lake that he caught nothing all night. He gets a word from God on how to operate in that system. He's thinking from a different perspective. He's thinking from a different system. And right, I don't know a lot about fishing, but most people fish at night, right? So it's already morning. Not exactly the ideal time to fish. 
And here's what it represents too, though. He's got to get more nets from his other fishermen who probably didn't catch much either. But I'm reading into that, but I'm just, that's a conjecture I'm making. And he's got more fish than he can handle. What's it a picture of? When we're, in, when we're operating as God intends from the kingdom world system is, we're not only to have enough for ourselves, the blessing and the favor of God that's upon our life, in our sphere of influence, in our place of employment, we're supposed to have more than enough go, hey man, I got, way, I got like enough fish for three months. Here, take my fish. I know you're suffering. Switch identity and switch systems. That's why I don't understand people who don't believe in the blessing of God and the prosperity of God. Why would you not want to have more than enough to help people? It's a beautiful thing when you can feed people. Oh, don't worry about that. We'll take care of that. How do you do that? It's the God I serve. He's not broke, and he cares about people. So here's, what, here's how Paul put it about Jesus being the second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from who, who, who is from heaven. This is 1 Corinthians 15. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. That's us. And as is the heavenly man, that's Jesus, so also are those who are heavenly. In, excuse me. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly Man, we bear the image of the heavenly man if we're in Christ. Jesus became the second Adam. Jesus redeemed what was forfeited by Adam in the garden. And here's what I find extremely interesting is what is Jesus' first message when he comes? Matthew 4, 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that word repent? It's to change one's mind, purpose, change of direction, and conversion. There comes that idea of not only switching your identity as being the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, but also converting systems. He's saying, change the way you think. Change the way you think because I'm freely giving you the kingdom of God. But unless you change the way you think, unless you change your perspective of how you're looking at life, you're used to operating out of the realm of the soul, out of the realm of the mind, out of the realm of, of responding things through your emotions and things and, 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 and responding to every tragedy that comes your way. You'll have to change the way you think because there's a better way of thinking and it's my kingdom, it's my rule, it's my domain, it's my way of life and in that way is there's only one way and it's called surrender. So essential to our discipleship process of becoming like him is the renewed mind. 1 Corinthians 2 We'll just read verse 16. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have, but we have, but we have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2. Philippians 2. And I'll remind you that when God makes a statement in Scripture, he's not giving a suggestion, he's giving a command. Sometimes, as Americans, it's a little challenging to receive those statements because we think, well, you know, like, well, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want that, so I don't have to live with that. Philippians 2, let this mind, let this mind be in you, Philippians 2, verse 5, which was also in, what? Christ Jesus. Proverbs 23, 7. Proverbs 23, 7. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. So for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. And then Romans 12, Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So he actually, what is essentially saying is the only way the kingdom of God can be maximized in your life is when you're all in. Because what? A double-minded man receives nothing from the Lord. So, as much as you know, everything belongs to the Lord. And then he says, what, what does he say? It's really interesting how he puts this language. And don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world. What's he actually telling us? You may not realize it, but he's actually telling us, don't be conformed like Adam. Don't think like Adam thought. But be transformed, what, by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and the acceptable and perfect will of God. So there's a command to think like God. There's a command to think like God, and it was at the foundation of Jesus' core teaching to teach, teach us about the kingdom of God, that the mind must shift to receive the kingdom of God. And here's what has come to be a really, really important value in my life. The mind must be in a continual state of change. The mind, in Christ, the mind must be in a continual state of change. The mind must be in a continual state of change. Because we cannot live and we cannot receive from God beyond our place of thinking. We cannot live and receive from God beyond our place of thinking. Children of Israel is a great example, right? What's really interesting is this. He tells them the promise is to go, right? I want you to go now, now into the promised land. There's, there's not any provision in God's plan for them to wander around for 40 years. The good news is God never threw them away. You know, he kind of had a thought about it. I'll just kill him. <laughs> Moses steps in there. <laughs> no, you can't do that. You're right. But they're going to wander for a while. But what happens? Now is the time to go into the promised land. And what's even more interesting is this, is that he actually... Uh, the, the scouts come to Moses like, hey, we want to go scout out the land. So he goes, yeah, go scout it out. What's interesting to me is, as I read that sometimes, I'm thinking, doesn't he know they're going to see how big these people are? 
just because he told them he wanted them to enter in doesn't mean they weren't going to see the obstacle in front of them. So he sends them out, and we know. The majority of them, except Caleb and Joshua, you see this, I see this constantly in Scripture. And I don't see it in a critical way of these biblical characters, but I go, how many times have God told me something and I see it in the wrong way? They all come back. They're like, they're like grasshoppers in our sight. Joshua and Caleb, what are they saying? The word of the Lord. We're well able to go up and possess the land. What's the will of God? The will of God is for them to go in. But their inability to switch their minds and their confession forced God to deal with them at a place of immaturity. He didn't throw them away, but he intended them to go in right then. So we cannot live beyond the place of our thinking and receiving. And here's the, here's the other part that's really important too. Here's what, what I've come to discover. Not everything's possible if your mind's not being continually renewed. You can confess whatever you are. Oh, everything's possible in God. No, 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 no. Your thinking is not aligned enough to receive that place. That's why he's trying to keep getting you to shift your thinking because he wants everything to be possible. He wants you to see every challenge and go, praise the Lord, this is doable. This is amazing. I, I'm so thankful for this problem because I got a prophetic word that takes me through it. <laughs> but what's, here's what's even more fascinating. 40 years now pass, and what happens? God's going, it's time to go in, and there's a city that's completely walled. And what's the word of the Lord? March around the city seven times, and on the seventh day, march seven times, and then shout. That's weird. Also, just because 40 years have gone by doesn't mean that they just go in right away. They still see the obstacle, still have to think differently about the situation. Here's another thing that I, I've thought. Just because we've been in Christ for a while doesn't mean we're mature. You could be 20 years in Christ and still taking the first grade for 20 years. And I remember, it was actually here. It's getting ready for a meeting here on a Saturday night. And I always remember what the Lord said to me. He said, I cannot violate the perverted thought process of man to fulfill my will for their lives. I cannot violate the perverted thought process of man to fulfill my will for their life. And here's another thing about our thinking. We're, there's no place in our minds and our hearts that is demilitarized. What do I mean by that? We have a thought process that defines every area of our life. We have a thought process of how we think about money. We have a thought process of how we think about our children, how we think about our relatives. We all have thoughts that define us. Now, the, the, the question is this, is now that we're in Christ, are the thoughts of God now defining that area of our life? And the good news is nobody's arrived, nobody's perfected, but we must be, we must receive being in a continual state of change. And I think I touched on this verse last year when I was here. 
one of the deepest desires of the Holy Spirit is to teach the people of God how to live under an open heaven in which everything he provided for us becomes a reality and experience upon the earth so that God's desire would be fulfilled in the earth. Look at um, Mark, the second chapter. Mark, the second chapter. You tracking with me? Hopefully. No, I'm throwing a lot out there. I think I used this verse last year. Mark the second chapter. And here, it, I believe these verses open up to us the understanding that unless we're going to progress in truth in understanding, in a renewed mind, we, we, will, we will cease to become as God intends us to become. And we, there's a danger that if we're not continually changing, then we are influenced by a form of godliness that God never intended, and it's called the religious spirit. And here's how, here's what, here's how I'll illustrate it to you in Mark 2. Then the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting, and when they came to him and said to him, this is uh, Mark the second chapter, verse 18 through 19. And they came to him and said, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? This is really interesting. I want to point out, too, that uh, fasting is a healthy New Testament religious exercise. And Jesus is not teaching against fasting here. But what, what I want to illustrate to you is that they're engaged in a religious act, but it's incongruent with what God is doing. You can be doing a biblical thing, but in the wrong season, it's totally out of order. Yeah, just a little, not all the time, but it might be a more personal thing, but you know, you're like, sometimes you're like in these wonderful, intimate moments of worship. And so like, ah! I'm going, jeez, like, what are you doing? Like, we're having this intimate moment. And you, wrong season. Hmm. I mean, last night we had a roar going on. I mean, there was a place for that. But sometimes you're just like, oh, I love you, Jesus. Ah! I'm going, what are you doing? Like, Jesus. <laughs> just like kissing at his feet. And you're like. A good action, wrong season. And you know, it's usually a wrong action. You're like, hey, can you're shutting down the Holy Spirit. No, I'm shutting you down. <laughs> so here's the two people asking Jesus this question. Disciples of John. Why is this important? Because... Disciples of John were people who followed John, who was a forerunner for Jesus. I'm illustrating this because it's important to point out these are not people who didn't want what God wanted in the earth. These people were actually people who heard the voice of God and who bore witness before most people in a religious structure recognize and go, that guy's carrying God's message for the hour. So they're, they were forerunners in what God was doing in the earth, and they chose to follow John. Second group of people is this. 
the Pharisees. We know them as separatists. There was much sound in their creed and their system of religion. And the Pharisees were the group with the most influence, and they were noted for their accurate and therefore authoritative interpretation of the Jewish law. They had their own traditions and way of life in which they were faithful. There was a core belief among the Pharisees is this, and this is even more interesting to me. There was a core belief that one of the reasons why they emphasized obedience to law and what they did was they added things so people could be law compliant. Let's say, you know, you weren't supposed to do this on the Sabbath, so they, they would give us five requirements to go, hey, so you, can, so, you can, so you can be obedient to this. Here's five things that you can do to help you be obedient to that. And uh, I think it was 600-something laws they came up with. And here's what's interesting about the Pharisees. Part of the reason they were so adamant about fulfilling the law is this. They believed that if they could fulfill the law, if they could obey the law, they could hasten the coming of the Messiah. So there was actually a good motive there. But here's what's fascinating. Good motive, perverted thinking equals perverse action. So it doesn't matter if you're like, well, I got a good motive, but your thinking is incorrect. It can hurt a lot of people. Here's what, here's what actually God's law teach. The law actually only required fasting on the Day of Atonement. But many other feasts had been added by religious Jews. And here's another thing. It was only required by one day, but what became a common practice was that a teacher and his rabbis would fast. So it was not an odd question. So this was accepted practice that if you were a rabbi and you had followers like Jesus, that you should be fasting. God only actually required one day. Be careful of, and I'm really guard on this, be careful putting requirements or convictions that the Lord has asked of you on other people if it's not in Scripture. One of the things, did a counter school a few weeks ago, and I always, everybody's got to develop their own, but I'll never Put, but there's things that the Lord has asked me to do. I know he's asked me to do. I know he's asked me to live as part of my life. I want you to live your life like this until I tell you differently. But I would never go, Lee, you should do this because I'm doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So verse 19, Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts, and the wines burst the wineskin, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must put into new wine skins. So what's he referring to? He's referring to the wedding feast. Wedding feast required seven days of festivity. I'm going to institute that in my wedding. One was, permitted to, one was not permitted to fast or engage in other acts of mourning or difficult labor during the wedding feast. Didn't would, would make sense. And then the cool thing is he refers to his disciples as friends of the bridegroom. And then, of course, he uses the analogy. The tightly sewn skins of goat during that time were used to hold wine. 
the fresh skin stretch as the grape juice or wine. If you're Pentecostal, it's grape juice. If you're Episcopalian, it's wine, alcoholic wine. But old skins could no longer stretch, so new wine would cause them to, bur- the burst, the, to burst. And Jesus uses this obvious illustration. So he says it's disastrous to put new wine into an old wineskin because the wineskin would birth, making both the wine and the wineskin ruined. So he uses this analogy, and basically what he's saying is this. The Pharisees and the disciples of John worldview and their thinking was incongruent with what God was doing in the earth. And because their thinking was incongruent, because their ideas of what God was doing defined how they were supposed to live, and they weren't defined by the voice of God, their, their actions were not congruent, and they couldn't receive the celebration that God was doing in that moment. So for whatever reason, there wasn't, especially in the disciples of John, there wasn't this progression of understanding to follow what Jesus was doing in that moment. And, and here's why I'm illustrating that. Because again, you're not talking about people who didn't hear the voice of God at one time. And you have this merging, in a sense, of this religious system that bound people to a form of God, but didn't offer them the life of God. And you have these other people who are on the cutting edge. They probably were mocked and scorned. You're following that John guy? He's out in the wilderness. He's never been to Bible college. Who ordained him? But you have this merging together of this thought process that becomes incongruent with what Jesus is doing. That's why it's always really important that even when we're, on, we're, we're forerunners or on the cutting edge of what God is doing, to never think we've arrived or we're living in the pinnacle of truth. I get really nervous around people who just kind of, they're not like us. Well, they don't, they're not intended to be like you. you know? I understand sometimes what people are saying. They, they maybe don't, they don't have this value system or they don't emphasize that. But we, no, no one group has ever arrived. Have a, I was talking to a friend this week in Colorado. He's on staff at a church, and he went to a group of a certain conference that I'm not very familiar, but I know that they're very influential. And I said, tell me what was the strength of what they did because I want to learn. I might not adopt their value system completely, but I want to learn what they do well and receive from it. Here's what's even more interesting. While the Pharisees claimed to desire the coming of Messiah, they actually preferred their own interpretation of what the Torah said. So incongruent thinking or the ability not to embrace a shifting of a, a continual shifting of our mind will prevent us from living in a continuous outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our individual lives, and our corporate communities. But here's also what I want to emphasize too. Because as kind of prophetic people, I know we got kind of prophetic people, prophetic church in this room, often we're going, what's God saying? And I, and I do, I'm, I'm what God is saying, what, what is the, saying. But here's what Jesus is also teaching here. The new wineskin does not make the old wineskin, the old wine obsolete. What the new wineskin is able to do, it's able to contain the old 
and then you. Why am I saying that? Because there's two dangers. There's, if, if there's not a progression of truth, you cease to become relevant. If there's not a progression of truth, you cease to become relevant in any area. And, and let me give you an illustration. The Jewish, we have Jewish roots, obviously, in the Bible. I'm more personal, my, and I know everyone doesn't agree with me, my personal view of Scripture is this. I highly emphasize the Jewish roots of Scripture. I believe to really understand the Messiah, Jesus, you have to understand the old very well. In fact, two-thirds of what Jesus spoke of when he walked this earth was the book of Deuteronomy. People are like, I'm New Testament. Well, Jesus talked a lot about the old. And that's my, that's my personal understanding of how I approach Scripture. I believe that the old and the new merge together through the cross of Jesus. That's how I view Scripture. I, I believe that, I'm just giving you more of my personal theological understanding. I believe that God wasn't this God of legalism in the old and this God of love and grace in the new. I believe he was, I believe the Jews understood he was loving and gracious even then. When he reveals himself, he said, I am good, I am gracious. And I don't believe that he was double-minded. I don't believe like he was this God of works in the old. It was always understood that you couldn't fully fulfill the law without his help. So, I, I just say all that, but... The Jewish faith was always supposed to progress in the coming of the Messiah. It always found its zenith in the coming of Jesus. Why am I saying that? Because the majority of the, of the Jewish faith did not receive Jesus, the Yeshua, as the promised Messiah. So there was not a progression of truth. So every form of Judaism you see in the world right now is completely aberrant aberrant and pagan unless it receives Jesus as the Messiah. What happened? They ceased to become relevant because there wasn't a progression of truth. Now, the flip side of that is I believe God still has covenant with Israel. I know a lot of people don't know that's fine, whatever. No one's been still able to answer that question, though, is why do you think there's a nation over there now? They're just hanging out? Every other nation around them wants to destroy them, and they would if they could. They can't. <laughs> it's like the size of New Jersey, and nobody can destroy it, you know? The only thing most Muslims can agree on is they hate Jews. And they still, they can't even get together to destroy them, you know? Anyway, side quote, that's my own humor. <laughs> but you see, and that's, for me personally, that's why I don't give to any of any these Causes that don't believe Jesus, the Yeshua, is the Messiah. Because everything you see out there, it's a form of witchcraft, paganism, spirituality, missed to the other. It's not Judaism. There's nothing close that even comes to even the Torah, Old Testament. I know some of them will get really mad at me for saying that. But what happened? There was not a progression of truth, so they ceased to become relevant. So the, where there's no progression of truth, we cease to become relevant in what God intended for us. And here's why that's also dangerous. Because when we don't grow and grow in understanding and the knowledge of God, part of, our, part of our walk with God was always meant to grow in the knowledge of God. 
But where we don't grow and we don't progress in our understanding of God, we begin to, we begin to relate to God from a place of principle that doesn't have complete understanding. And then what happens is we could be relating to a God made in our own image. But here's, 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 the, um, here's the part I want to go back to. The new wineskin does not make the old obsolete. It contains both the old and the new. Isaiah 28.10 puts it this way. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Why am I saying that? Because sometimes what I've witnessed is if people have a revelation of something or have an understanding of something, but it doesn't come uh, uh, truth upon truth, precept upon precept, and within the whole counsel of Scripture, I believe sometimes it can get off the, off the rails and be something that God never intended it to become. You know, I'll give one illustration, and I'm not throwing stones at anyone. You know, there's a truth. I really believe there is a truth of understanding the grace of God and the love of God in the earth. But it, it, sometimes it can come across just as so one-dimensional, people can't see outside of the lens of one revelation. And sometimes they don't realize it, they're actually serving a God made in their own image. And here's the beauty of walking with God. Again, this is not to put dispersion or condemnation. God, the book, is closed. He closed the book and it was done. But he reveals to us truth in degrees. Why? Why does he reveal to... One of the, one of the ways the Lord put this to me is this way. Um, Maeve, what's three years old? She understands the English language. When we're, when we're children in the Lord or we're newborns in the Lord, I can, I can understand what God is speaking to me. I can understand. He told me this. He told me that. He told me this. He told me that. I, I can understand what he's saying. Because I have comprehension of the language of God, but I have no idea how to do anything with it. So what does he do to us? In his graciousness, he reveals to us truth in degrees. I can sit with Maeve, and I can tell her all about economics. I can go, there's a free market, and this is how it works, and there's supply and demand. And she can shake her head because she understands the English language. She'll understand what I'm saying, but she's got no grid to apply it. So what does he do to us? When we become born again, he has this grid called our minds, called the mind of Christ, that he wants in a continual state of change. The book doesn't change, but our understanding of him does. And so years ago, it's almost going to be 20 years, I stood up in this meeting that I was in. My life completely changed. From that moment forward, I would say, like, I knew I was going to go to the nations of the earth. I knew I was going to. I knew I was going to travel. I knew I was going to see an outpouring of the Spirit. I had no idea how that was going to be expressed. I didn't know how the grace of God would function through me. I didn't know how it was all going to. So slowly, as you walk with Him, making lots of mistakes, He begins to go. Here's where you go. Here's how that's applied. And what's He doing in the process? He's shifting you. Like I don't know if you're like me, but when you walk with God. Like, I think back to two years ago, man, I don't know if I was even born again two years ago, because I thought some stupid things back then. And he reveals to us truth in degrees. It doesn't, and here's the thing, it doesn't make what he said 20 years ago irrelevant to me. It adds to the truth 
it was old wine, but if my wineskin, which is the mind of God, is, a, is a, a, uh, elastic and pliable and able to change and able to shift, then I'm able to readjust, 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 readjust. And things that I thought, like, there's no way I could do that. It's totally possible now. Not that we ever arrive, but our thinking begins to change. Here's a question that I've been asking myself. We'll land the plane for this session. How much of Scripture do I really believe is true and is possible for me? How much of Scripture do I really believe is true and is possible to me? And another question is, do I want my belief system changed to conform to his reality? Do I want my belief system changed to conform to his reality? So we must always be on guard from ever thinking we kind of got it. And one of the ways I've learned that we, 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 we guard ourselves in that is the continually put, putting ourselves in the presence and in the face of God, continual life of fellowship, intentional. Because you can't be arrogant when you're in his face, you know, like. It actually is a sign of humility when you're constantly turning towards him. It's actually a declaration of your worship. You're saying, I can't live this life without you. I need your help. It's a sermon on the Mount lifestyle. I'm in deep need of you. And the longer I walk with you, I realize that I'm going to really need your help to fulfill some of the things you're asking me to do. So, in, in teaching, sometimes we have these, this concept called uh, objectives we want to meet. And I'm going to read this, and then we'll, we'll, we'll close for this session. In, uh, we read, and there's a reason too, number of reasons I read Genesis 2, because you find in Genesis 2, Adam does not stop to ask God what he's supposed to name the animals. He doesn't stop and have a prayer meeting. He doesn't stop and contemplate it. If he was under the dominion of God, he acted as God's representative, and he instinctively told them what they were supposed to be named. And I believe here in Matthew 8, we'll see that Jesus actually shows us one of the goals of the transformed mind. Look at the... Matthew 8. Matthew, the 8th chapter. And when he had come down from the mountain, a great multitude followed him. This is verse 1. And behold, a leper came and worshiped, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me cleanse. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And I was saying a minute ago, one of the things that we, we like to do, especially I've do, do, been doing this more and more in schools and conferences, is I think at the end, and I think, what do I want people to get when they leave this place? And here's one of the goals, I believe, of Scripture that Scripture teaches us. So Jesus comes off the mountain, this leper comes to him, and it's very fascinating that the language that Jesus uses here. We know, right, 
Jesus is fully God, fully man, but as he's relating to humanity around him, he's operating as a man in right relationship with God. And the language he uses here in verse 3, he said, Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Why do I say that? Because he doesn't say, God is willing. He said, I am willing. And I believe it's in, I'm not saying we don't pray about things anymore. I'm not saying we don't meditate upon things. But as God's representative in the earth, as the son of God, he knew as he was one with his father in heaven, he knew what the will of God was. He displayed the will of God through his thinking. And he didn't have to go, I think this might be the right thing to do. He was bold enough to say, I am willing. As God's representative, I know what the will of God is, and I'm thinking correctly, so I'm telling you it's the will of God for you to be healed. And I believe that God is looking for a group of people who, as our hearts and our minds are synchronized with him, will be bold enough to go, God is, I I am willing, excuse me, I am willing. I know what the will of God is. I don't have to stop and pray four minutes in the Holy Ghost. I am So that was part one. You receive this? If you do, why don't you just stand on your feet? Let's just lift our hands. Father, thank you for what you've done here this morning. I don't know who this is, but someone, you have a pain in your lower back, and the Lord is healing your lower back. Be healed in your lower back. Be healed in your lower back. In Jesus' name. Be healed in your lower back. In Jesus' name. Somebody headache, be healed in Jesus' name. Somebody's right knee, be healed in Jesus' name. Be healed in Jesus' name. Be healed in Jesus' name. Neck, pain in your right neck, be healed in Jesus' name. Be healed in Jesus' name. Be healed in Jesus' name. Right shoulder, be healed in Jesus' name. Pain on the top of your feet, both of your feet, fire of God's on your feet. Be healed in Jesus' name. Just put your hand on your head. Father, we're here this morning because we want to know your ways. Thank you for the mind of Christ. Thank you for progression in the mind of Christ. Father, I just declare where there's been lies that have been believed in Jesus' name. You're the spirit of truth. Expose them to us. Expose areas of our thinking where we serve the God made in our own image. We want to serve the God that we read about in the Bible, the true God. I break any guilt. I break any condemnation from anyone beating themselves up. Thank you for the grace of God that lifts us up and that causes us to be joyful in all situations. And I bless your people to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We release the spirit of wisdom and revelation and we say, Lord, thank you for advancing us today in your ways. Amen. Back at what? Two o'clock. Two o'clock.